Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to look at when Jesus was tempted by Satan. We are going to look at two accounts here that um, from the Gospels. First, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then we're going to jump to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. We're going to also look at a couple of other verses here to get some background. We'll look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And then we are going to finish up in Genesis chapter 3. So again, we're looking at um, a couple of accounts here where Satan essentially tempts Jesus by offering him all the things in the world without going through the actual crucifixion without going through the death. Essentially, Satan's trying to offer Jesus uh, a easy way out or a um, sort of a backdoor into the promises in which God had made to him. Like always, Satan's lying. He's a counterfeit. He would never give Jesus what he promised him. He would just simply have had Jesus perform whatever Satan was asking him. And then, like he does with us, point the finger, accuse us, and tell us how rotten we are for falling into his very entrapments. So, thankfully, Jesus, as our perfect example, resisted Satan. And this is also going to touch on what we spoke about a little while back about having scripture in your heart, in your mind, so that when you are tempted, you can reference back and bring God's word right into the conversation when you're having some sort of temptation. So, all right, here we go. Let's look at Jesus being tempted by Satan. All right, so like I said, we are going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So right there, Jesus, again, comes right back at Satan with scripture. So Satan is basically saying, oh yeah, if you're the son of God, you just came out of, um, you know, 40 days of fasting and prayer. Obviously, Jesus, as a physical human being, his body was probably craving nourishment. And what's the first thing Satan does when we're in times of starvation in any area of our life? He brings that thing right in front of our face, although it is not necessarily of God and may not be um, the time to pursue whatever it is. He puts it right in front of our face, his counterfeit answer to what our true heart's desire is and what we truly desire from God and says, all right, well, here you go. So, all right, we'll pick up at verse five. Then the devil took him up into the holy place, set him on the pinnacle of the temple 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, You shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So, quickly we'll stop there at verse 7 again. Satan is actually quoting scripture at this point in verse 6. He quotes two psalms to Jesus, and then Jesus fires right back with his own, um, his own rebuttal out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And quickly, we're going to jump back to verse 4. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That word is a Hebrew-Greek word, rema, which is said or spoken in utterance in contrast to logos, which is the expression of a thought, a message, a discourse. Logos is the message. Rema is the communication of the message. In reference to the Bible, logos is the Bible in its entirety. Rema is a verse from the Bible. The meaning of Rema is distinction to Logos is illustrated in Ephesians 6.17, where the reference is not to the scriptures as a whole, but to the portion which the believer wields as a sword in the time of need. So, you know, we looked at that a little while ago, Jesus being the word also putting on the spiritual armor of God and the word being our sword of the spirit. So um, Jesus is wielding that sword and he's battling Satan right now, verse for verse, thought for thought, temptation for temptation. And we're going to pick it up here, finishing up verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So that concludes that uh, little passage right there. And that word angels um, translates to angelos from angelo to deliver a message, hence a messenger. In the New Testament, the word has the special sense of a spiritual heavenly personage attendant upon God and functioning as a messenger from the Lord sent to earth to execute his purposes, and to make them known to men. Angels are visibly present in the assemblies of Christians, or excuse me, invisibly present in the assemblies of Christians, and are appointed by God to minister to believers. So right there, if you look at the um, ascension, if you will, of the temptations that Satan throws at Jesus, he goes from bread then he goes to, all right, well, commit suicide to tempt God and then to prove something that, 
again, we have nothing to prove to any outsider, to any satanic um, influence, a, sat a dark person, dark influence in your life. Um, it's all about, again, knowing the scripture, knowing God, and knowing what his purposes are and what he would allow in our lives and not allow in our lives. And then the final temptation in this passage here, you see Satan basically opens it up and says, all right, I'll give you all of this if you fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus comes back with the absolute perfect response and says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So let's look at some of the notes down here for, again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Verse 1 note says to be tempted from the divine standpoint means a positive test. From the devil's standpoint, it implies enticement to sin. From Jesus' standpoint, it is a challenge from Satan to test God's sovereignty and plan. So, again, I mean, look, temptation, um, tests, if you will, resist the devil and he will flee. He will, as you see, Satan progressively tempted Saint uh, Jesus and um, Jesus resisted by, again, coming back with scripture, having knowledge of the word of God, as obviously he is the living word, the logos. And then um, also um, being able to resist that sin. And then God finally sent angels to minister to him. And he does the very same for us. You know, those tests, whatever they are, they're only a short-lived test. And, you know, you may fail, you may fall, but eventually you'll see the emptiness in whatever those temptations are. And then God builds us up like a callus on your skin. He strengthens that part of us spiritually to where we get to the point where, you know, that temptation comes back around. You've fallen and failed in it and seen the emptiness in it so many times that finally you say, look, don't even waste your time. I, don't, I want nothing to do with this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. Again, um, you know, there's always ways tempting Satan's going to tempt us, but um, I can speak from personal experience that, you know, <laughs> the only way that you can really become uh, callous to something, again, it's not anything on my own um, uh, great uh, testimony of my anything I've done, because frankly, the only thing I've done is just failed to it, then seen to the point of where God is forever, his promises are good, and I want him more than I would ever want to um, try to indulge any certain area of my life with fleshly things that I know are empty. And, um, frankly, we know just don't fulfill ultimately those eternal longings that we have that only God can fulfill in his perfect time in your life. So let's go on to the note from verse three, Matthew chapter four. It says, if does not imply doubt, but expresses an assumed fact and may be translated since. So again, this is where Satan says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread or, you know, since you are, I mean, Satan's even acknowledging, of course, he knows who Jesus is, but you know, he tries to get into Jesus's head. Again, this is a psychological game. This is a spiritual game. And it's far from, um, you know, 
it's not out of the realm of Satan to bring up some very personal things and bring up some uh, points in your life that are very sensitive and he will try to, um, you know, get you to fall, walk into traps because, you know, sometimes when you walk blindly and you try to stray from the will of God, then that's what happens. You fall into those things. So, all right, picking up here, the verse, the note for verse four, Jesus's appeal to scripture provides the clue for interpreting the temptation narrative using the word of God. He is victorious over the same temptations to which Israel had succumbed in the wilderness when they forced a test upon God in time of need. Um, moving on to verse 6, the temptation solicits a compelling messian messianic proof. Um, and then finishing up here with the notes for chapter 10 and 11, rather than earthly power, Jesus affirms exclusive worship of God and his vocation of humble obedience and suffering. Jesus emerges as victor in this reputation of a false messiahship based upon compromise and power. So Jesus, thankfully, um, of course, in his perfect way, was able to resist the devil. He did flee. And he did not take, quote unquote, the easy way out or the path of least resistance. He resisted the devil. And, you know, eventually God came and ministered to him. Um, so now let's look at Luke chapter four, verses one to 13. So. All right. Starting at Chapter 4, verse 1 in Luke. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Then Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he, Satan, brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, 
it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then we'll look quickly down at this note for verse 13 from Luke chapter 4. Again, looking at the Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible, it says the three temptations just described were only typical of a much wider struggle in which Jesus engaged with the devil. The attacks of Satan continued throughout Jesus's ministry. And then um, we are going to look next at, there's a nice section down here in my study Bible that's called Temptation. The two Adams contrasted. Both Adam and Christ faced three aspects of temptation. Adam yielded, bringing upon humankind sin and death. Christ resisted, resulting in justification and life. And then this section looks at um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, and then it where it describes basically how we are tempted. And then we look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the first Adam, where Adam fell. And then we, we looked just now at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, the second Adam, Christ, being the representative of man, how he resisted Satan and did not sin, which was part of that overall salvation and atonement that Jesus fulfilled when he lived the perfect life, and now as sons and daughters of God, when we accept Jesus Christ and become part of his family, we are viewed by the Father in that same exact light of that perfect life that Jesus lived. So um, again, starting at 1 John, we're going to look at this quickly, chapter 2, verse 16, where it states, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then quickly, um, the, my study Bible here has a good note. It says, the world does not refer to the physical creation, but to the sphere of evil operating in our world under the dominion of Satan. So again, that's basically, you know, describing the world. When we as Christians talk about, you know, we're not part of the world, we want to resist the world. Um, you know, again, it's not the physical, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but it's the system of overall, the fallen, manly world that resists God, rejects God, and we are called to be set apart from the world to not be part of the world. That's the world of this system, this man-made system, these man-made beliefs. That's why when you hear certain people who may call themselves Christians, you know, also um, accepting certain scientific things or certain um, lifestyles that contradict what the word of God says, again, I question their label of Christian because uh, evidently, in the Bible, clearly, it states that, um, you know, if you are a follower of God, you will follow and take hold and heed his word, as opposed to heed the ways and the teachings of the world above the word of God. 
So again, there's a lot of characters out there calling themselves Christians these days. You can easily see if someone's a Christian, again, simply by the fruit of their life, by the fruit that is produced um, in, you know, their actions and what they do. So let's look at this again, first John two sixteen. flipping back to this little layout here, the temptation, the two atoms contrasted, um, in two sixteen, the temptation is broken down into three subsections, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now it breaks it down and says the lust of the flesh in Genesis three, six, the first Adam, the tree was good for food. So again, that starving flesh, that hungry flesh that craves something other than what God has blessed and given us to partake in. And it says uh, Jesus can, um, Jesus was tempted when Satan said, command this stone to become bread. Again, just appealing to that flesh, that nutritious desire, I'm sure, that the man God man had after, you know, being out in the wilderness and fasting for 40 days that, of course, you know, physically you're going to be hungry and probably malnourished and your body's going to crave nourishment. But Jesus, again, standing on the solid work, word of God, knowing every expectation the father had of him and being part of that triune Godhead simply said, absolutely not. And you know, quotes back and resists Satan at that time. The second section here, the lust of the eyes. Um, in Genesis 3, 6, again, it was pleasant to the eyes. The fruit, that um, exceedingly nice looking, whatever it was, that was offered to him by Satan. And then, um, again, the, the similar type of temptation there in Luke with the second Adam of Christ in Luke 4, 1 to 13, the devil showed him all the kingdoms. So again, devil took Satan up on high, showed him with the eyes, you know, look at all of this. It can all be yours if you only worship me. You know, that's the typical lie, um, the deceit. Um, you know, we all fall into this, uh, you know, we see something and we go after it. And then we realize, oh, well, that doesn't fulfill that need that I thought it would. And then you go after something else trying to fill that need. But the whole time, what people don't realize is they're trying to fill a need that only the Holy Spirit can fill. They're trying to find that peace, joy, love, um, fulfillment, that the completion that the Holy Spirit offers the human soul when the Holy Spirit comes into us, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Um, again, just people trying to replace everything, replace that with everything that appeals to their eyes and their flesh. And then finally, the pride of life, Genesis 3, 6, the first Adam, a tree desirable to make one wise. And then in Luke for one to 13, the second Adam Christ, throw yourself down from here. Um, again, just appealing to, well, if you are who you say you are, let's see you do this. And again, um, 
Adam fell because he wanted more wisdom and knowledge outside of what God had revealed to him. So in pursuing that quote-unquote wisdom and knowledge, Adam disobeyed God, fell, assumed that this one little thing wasn't going to be a big deal. Little did he know that he actually welcomed sin into his body and in turn into the entire race of man um, through that rebellion against God. So now we're going to flip back quickly, look at Genesis 3, 6, and it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So again, I mean, right there, the um, desire was to fulfill the flesh, fulfill that um, desire to have knowledge that was outside of what God had intended. And then the note here says, the desire to become wise seemed quite reasonable to the woman. Unfortunately, her definition of wise was human self-rule, not God dependency, as taught in Proverbs 1.7. So that right there, again, just looking at how we as people are tempted by Satan and easily fall into his snares when we're not walking with the Lord, when we're not actively engaged in prayer, in digging into the word of God, getting to know God. You know, it's funny. I prayed for years to um, God, let me know who you are. Show me you, you know, <laughs> and little did I ever pick up my Bible and actually read and try to get to know the character of God. But this Bible study has been a blessing, I hope, for others as well as mainly really for myself also, because I've had the opportunity to dig into the word of God in a way I've really never have before. And the difference it makes in your spiritual walk is literally undescribable. I mean, I can't even really think of an analogy in, in, in life as to how different your walk will be once you get to know the character of God and dig into his word as much as possible and really get to know who he is. So we're going to look here. There's a good note in Genesis um, for chapter three, verse 17. Um, and it's one of the kingdom dynamics, one of the sections from the spirit filled life Bible that I study out of new King James version, where basically it says man's critical role in the affairs of the earth from the perspective of man's strategic role. We must assume him to be more valuable than anything on earth. No other form of earthly life plays such a cosmic role as mankind. The world literally stands or falls based on the actions of men. Only man has the power to deplete the earth's resources and to pollute its atmosphere. The sin of one man, Adam, corrupted the world. The continued sinfulness of mankind caused the flood. In contrast, the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, brought justification and righteousness to many. If redeemed men were to walk 
in the justification and righteousness, could they not cause the world to blossom, to, excuse me, to bloom and blossom? God wants to reveal his truth and beauty to the world only through redeemed mankind. Each believer has strategic significance in his own sphere. He or she must strive to maximize the impact of the good and encourage others to do the same. All right. Again, that just really perfectly describes just, you know, the impact our actions have on everything around us. So don't ever think, again, this little thing isn't a big deal, you know, this little sin, this little action, this little decision, this choice, um, that all, I always say this, our life is comprised of every little choice we make, makes up our entire life. So, and that is true when you think about it, every little choice you make comprises what your life eventually is seen and lived out and the purpose of your life in the long term. So finishing up here, we're going to look at this truth in action section at the end of Genesis, and it's called Guidelines to Avoiding Sin. Man fell by choice. The tempter is the father of lies, deceiving and seducing us to sin. The lie questions God's word, giving our opinion absolute authority. Our opinions are easily are easy prey to Satan's deception. And that kind of um, goes when I think of that um, opinion section that he mentions. I'll just say there's two main ways to interpret the Bible that would be literal and allegorical, which we're going to get into very soon. But the literal interpretation is what I and many people subscribe to, which Basically, and there's good reason for that, which, again, I will get into soon, but it, you know, means the Bible says what it says. It literally, we take it literally and um, allegorical would be taking the Bible, treating it as if it's a almost fictional text and then just trying to pull, I guess, stories or thoughts out of what is there and making your own interpretation. It reminds me of kind of people that want to have secret knowledge almost, um, you know, secret meanings behind certain things. Look, God realizes we're simple. God realizes we're fallen. God realizes we see what's in front of us and we go for it. Hence the whole <laughs> fall of man. And God also knows that in order for us to understand him, He's going to make it as clear and simple of a conveying of a message as possible. So that's why if you read the Bible cover to cover, you'll see that simply um, it's very easy to understand. It's very easy to be taken literally. The literal interpretation makes entire sense and complete sense. And it's truly about the revelation of Jesus Christ from the beginning of Genesis all the way up to the book of Revelation, which has not yet happened, uh, which are definitely things to come. They are not done. The allegorical interpreter may say, oh, well, you know, that was Rome. That was X, Y or Z. That already happened. The Bible's done and finished. You know, again, <laughs> there's no biblical base for what those people say. but if you put it in, if you put certain things into those 
context and categories, then it's easy to fall into those self-interpretations. And how confusing is it? God is not a, uh, the author of lies or confusion. Why would he give us a literal text that we can literally read right here in black and white and then say it's open to interpretation? Uh, look, there's over 7 billion people on the earth. Does that mean there's over 7 billion interpretations of the Bible? Absolutely not. There's one word, one God, and one truth. That's Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only mediator between God and man. And it's that simple. And that's the truth, the word. That's the simple gospel. And Again, we're simple. We're, we're um, as, as as intelligent as we may want to think we are, and can be, and crafty, and as um, you know, uh, inventive and innovative as we can be, and uh, you know, we can evolve technologies, etc. Um, at the end of the day, we're simple. You know, I mean, life's about food, shelter, and um, love, essentially, and it hasn't changed from the beginning of time up till now. As as much as the world changes around us, things definitely stay the same. The older you get, the more you'll understand that saying. So, and you know what it is that really stays the same when I look at it now at the middle age of 41, I guess. The heart of man is what stays the same. And that's what really the crux of that saying is. Because although all the technology is different now, everything looks like it's moving in one direction or, or a faster speed. At the end of the day, people are people, quote unquote, whatever you want to say. But the condition of the human heart remains the same from Adam to everyone right now to the very most recent baby born this second. Every heart is subject to that very same condition that we're born into under that curse of sin. And the only way to have that curse broken is, again, to acknowledge the fact that we can't do it on our own. And the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the way in order to attain eternal peace, love, joy, hope, and most, most importantly, and the free gift of God, salvation. So again, that's easily attained by confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believing that in your heart truly, and then the Holy Spirit will come and fill you get into the word of God, read, 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 pray, 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 and fast, 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 you know, and let God begin you on this awesome path and journey that he has for each and every one of us. You know, we all have talents, gifts, whatever you want to call it. And we all have those things that we can use in life for whatever purpose we want to use them for. But ultimately, God gave us those gifts for his purpose and his will. So, all right, I think I'm going to finish up there for today. Again, that was the quick episode on the temptation of Christ by Satan. Uh, have a great day. God bless.